1: Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs.
0: Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, Joe Neal and Hannah Thurger. We're hosting together today. We have an absolutely brilliant guest for you today, folks, and we have an awful lot to discuss about professional sports careers, serious life-limiting injury that occurred to our guest, the mental distress that followed, and the healing power of psychedelics in the natural environment. So without further ado, that guest is Rory Lamont, and he is a former international rugby union player. He played for the Glasgow Warriors, the Sale Sharks, Toulon, And of course, Scotland. And while he was representing Scotland in the 2012 Six Nations Tournament, he suffered a career-ending leg break. That was followed by a debilitating health crisis which derailed his life and led him to look for alternative healing with psychedelic plant medicines. And I had the pleasure of meeting Rory very recently at the Scottish Indigenous Apothecary event in Edinburgh. And that culminated in a a fantastic event at the Scottish Parliament. So I'd like to do a quick shout out for the Scottish Psychedelic Research Group. They hosted the events. It was three events over three days. And this was led by Anna Ross, who also works with drug science, and Fiona Gilbertson from
1: Recovering Justice.
0: So a very warm welcome, Rory.
1: Well, thank you, Joe. Thank you for that introduction. It's really Wonderful to be on here. I've been familiar with, you know, drug science and, you know, particularly Professor Nutt's journey and being, you know, outspoken man, really, and standing in in the truth of of the science behind many different drugs and, and substances. So, yeah, well, thank you for welcoming me on board here.
0: Thank you very much. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have you. And yes, of course, David Nutt is a legend and very brave, extremely passionate and hugely knowledgeable. He's an extraordinary character. We have a lot of fun working with him, don't we, Hannah? Oh, we love it. It's fantastic. Learn something every day. Okay, so Rory, I think people will really want to hear your story, what happened to you. But I guess we should start with your career as a rugby kind of superstar. Maybe were you sort of following in the footsteps of your brother?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, much, very much. So, I, I came into rugby, uh, professional rugby, through the back door. i Had been trying to make it as a professional, but from about the age of seventeen, was started suffering from injuries, just like some bad, bad injuries, groin injuries. And meanwhile, my my brother had been he had been having his first professional contract with Glasgow Warriors. This is before he was playing for Scotland. And he kind of inspired me to keep going after I'd been kind of like tossed aside by Northampton Saints Academy. Anyway, I ended up moving up to Scotland, moving in with him and think thought, well, this is a place if I'm gonna make it into professional rugby. This is probably the place to do it. Sean's making a name for himself. I'll join one of the local teams who had been feeding the professional team. Anyway, very, very quickly, I think my brother had actually spoken to the Glasgow coaches and said, my brother's here and he, he's better than me <laughs> which was probably not true but it was very generous of him but the, the Glasgow coaches then invite me in to train and that was the rest is history six six months later after that I, I was representing Scotland in the six nations which was just the Whoa, most that seems very quick this is much unheard of really I, I'd been binned from the Northampton Saints Academy so not deemed good enough for their, their, you know, the, the under 21s team. But yeah, just when I came up to Scotland, everything's just started flowing really beautifully and being in that, you know, professional environment, just, and the coaches showing an interest and showing a lot of faith in me, just brought the best out of me and and everything just pff, went after years of difficulties with injuries, everything just went incredibly well. And Yeah, just, I guess, it really felt like magic happened in my life, just the the transformation, achieving childhood dreams. And I I definitely had a bit of imposter syndrome when I was getting my my first cap. You know, I'd only played a handful of games for Glasgow at the time.
0: Rory, stupid Um, question. What's a cap?
1: Okay, so it's when you get... They used to give out caps for every international game that you play when you represent your country. They don't give you a cap for every game now, but you get when you play for your country it's called a cap so i played for scotland 29 times over nine years and had so therefore i had 29 caps so my the first cap is always a significant point Um, when people get to the 50th and the 100th cap that tends to be a, a landmark point as well but i i never got that far as, uh, dealt with a lot of injuries in my career and had quite a short career. Nine years is actually quite quite short compared to some. So
0: what age do you did you start then? You said injuries by the age of 17. That seems young.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I started at 11 years old. Oof. And everything, was, yeah, yeah. And everything. And then some people started at seven, eight years old, playing tag rugby. I was actually re- really into football. That was my
0: mm-hmm.
1: number one sport. But the family weren't really interested in football and they kind of pulled me across into rugby really kind of against my will but i i surrendered to it and you know i think i scored a try the first time i ever touched the ball in, in, a, in a game and that, that was me kind of hooked into rugby and it kind of just the, the football slipped away to the side over, over a couple of years after that
0: very interesting so family family interest in rugby so okay so you're playing it's all going really well but it's a rough game isn't it
1: <laughs> yes, it's kind of insane, really. When I watch it now, it's I'm just like wow, just looking at the punishment the players are going through, and it's you know there's one thing in the matches that's so physical, it's so it's so fierce. Look, the games are so fierce, but people don't understand that the training is also fierce. So everything you're doing in games at the weekend, you, you're doing two, or three, at least two, or three times, or that's how it was when I. Was a player that you'd be doing really intense contact drills and, and intense like contact sessions where you're taking lots of impact. So you're getting lots of head blows, you're getting, you know, guys getting injured in training. But obviously in, in the game, there's everything that is on the line. It's kind of this simulation of war. I would say it's like and it's that kind of mindset where you're willing to put your body on the line, win at all costs. And yeah, yeah, you're willing to kind of sacrifice, sacrifice your body for the greater good, which in you know, in my case, my body wasn't really built for it. As interesting, my brother, he he was very robust, rarely got any injuries. Rory, he talks about the self-preservation gene, your brother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which he, he always said I lacked. So th- there was definitely that aspect. I, I really went and
0: Sorry, can you sort of put your body on the line and still preserve
1: yourself? It seems like counterintuitive, really. I guess there's a point where it, it becomes you know, the sacrificing, yeah, the sacrificing yourself, and then there's like you know, kind of like that unconscious death urge, which may, might have been you know, from Freudian psychology, might have been playing <laughs> out in my situation where I was just, yeah, just was unwilling to to yield in any situation really and as a fullback and winger at the position I played, it's a lot of going up for uh, you know, catching leaping for the ball in the air and colliding with people at high speed when keeping the eye on the ball. So in my case, I quite often I'd get head injuries through through that that situation in in, in the game. So but yeah, I definitely probably lack that self-preservation that maybe kicks in with some other players.
0: And head injury—that just seems so dangerous.
1: Yeah, but it was really, it was really interesting during my time as a professional player. It really wasn't spoken about much at all. It just—it was treated like any other injury, except you'd have to go through the—you know—after a knockout or a concussion, which would be a regular occurrence for me, fairly regular you would go through the return to play protocols, which is a series of cognitive tests that you do on a computer and also with the, the physio or a doctor, but they were pretty easy to cheat because you set your baseline while you are supposedly fit. So you do the test and set your baseline cognitive performance, and you've got to meet that baseline after you've had a head injury. But you know that in pre-season, you know, when you're, Setting this baseline, you don't perform too well, otherwise you're going to make it difficult for you to get back onto the pitch after you. Oh,
0: after oh. you've
1: had an injury. The guys deliberately, you know, do poorly on it, and even even so, I'd say it's not it's not a reliable, it's not a reliable measure of the damage to a brain. Like you, you can still pass these tests even when you've got significant damage, you know, to to your neurons, to your cells. So, you know, I was regularly returning to play, maybe, you know, sometimes a week after being knocked out or suffering a concussion because I could pass the return to play protocols. But there's no, you know, I was still having symptoms. Every time I'd have an impact, I'd be getting headaches and blackouts. And, and that would go on for, you know, a number of weeks afterwards. So it was definitely the safety protocols around head injuries were just not up to up to scratch. And rugby is still... Struggling to reach a state where they're managing managing head injuries appropriately, it's a difficult position for them because the teams and the game needs to to thrive, but they can't be ruling out players with concussion all the time. Otherwise, it's just financially unsustainable.
2: Has there been any progression, Rory, in changing the protocols for managing these type of traumas?
1: Hey, I'm not obviously I'm not in the game anymore, so I don't know the ins and outs. I still See that there's players getting concussed and returning to play you know within seven days of of that concussion, and you know a bruised a bruised leg won't heal in in seven days, so just because we can't see the brain, we're just assuming that the brain injury is over because they, they've passed the cognitive tests There's been a lot of changes i when I retired in two thousand and thirteen, I caused a bit of a, a a stink by speaking to the journalists about rugby's mismanagement of Concussion, which at the time that there hadn't really been much like spoken about it, but f- for the first time, I felt because I was no longer bound by my contract, I felt an obligation because I'd witnessed, I'd witnessed what was happening with NFL.
0: Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Good point. You know, seeing what the the lawsuit and litigation happening in in the NFL, and I was really paying attention to what was happening in rugby, and obviously with my own journey and witnessing what was happening with other players, and really wasn't in a position when I was still contracted to be able to speak out about what I saw was mismanagement and poor medical conduct really. So I spoke out when I retired and it caused a bit of a reaction and I was speaking about rugby in general but the BBC attacked the Scottish Rugby Union and you know who were my former employers or one of my former employers and so they had to get a bit defensive. But what happened from that? It's, it sparked a conversation and the conversation hasn't really stopped since since that point. It got the, the ball moving, I would say. And, and since that point, there has been a huge amount of discussion around the brain injuries and management of concussions. But rugby is a brutal sport. I don't know how I don't know how it, it can make it safe and keep it as it's, you know, in its pure form
0: yeah it is so worrying. I guess they'd have to change the game
1: a bit. yeah you know, I, I just think it needs to be informed consent. You know, just same way smokers know that when they're smoking cigarettes that it's it can cause cancer, you know one one thing that's not been spoken about is the the long term effects. you know well, I mean it is spoken about, but the the authority, rugby authorities aren't admitting that rugby contributes to CTE which is the, the Chronic Traumatic encephalopathy, which is the sportsman's early onset dementia that some of my ex teammates have had the diagnosis of.
0: So, sad. so
1: because they won't admit that rugby is part of the story there and part of the cause, because they're fearful of litigation, you know, it's still, it's not informed consent. And I, th- I think this has got to be there. It's like, you know, the players probably need to accept that they are risking their long-term mental health playing this game and then it's like well if you want to if you want to play this you go at least it's informed consent so that's still missing at at the moment and yeah the the, the rugby's been trying to like change the rules and the you know the the, the tackle rules and it's it's struggling because it is it is affecting the way the game is played and it's causing a lot of upset to the purists and who want to protect the game as it is so there's this like there's this like conflict of interest between maintaining the game of rugby in its purest form and also like player welfare and long-term health implications.
2: Yeah, very interesting, the idea of informed consent. We're used to it, aren't we, Joe, in clinical trials whereby participants have to give their informed consent, where they understand the potential short term effects, the long term effects. And obviously, with psychedelics is a very contentious subject, because gaining consent for psychedelics is actually a very tricky subject. How do you explain the psychedelic experience to someone who's completely naive? So the idea of informed consent in sports, is new to me, I'm not a rugby player at all. <laughs> um, but I think it's a, um, a great idea. So thinking about the long term, Consequences for some rugby players. Could you go into a bit more detail about that and what what people might face and how common they are?
1: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's happening right now is there's there's a a litigation class kind of lawsuit, like there was with the NFL. With you know, I'm not sure how many rugby players they've got. I think at the moment they're starting with you know, there's maybe ten internationals. Don't quote me on the figures, but ten former internationals who are, I guess, taking a lawsuit against. The English rugby union, the Welsh rugby union and world rugby, I think. And but there's also another maybe two hundred players and it's ever grown. It might be might be bigger than that now that are in gonna be in the second stage of the litigation. And these are players who are struggling, who have been really struggling in silence. And this is the issue here is like once you have once you're spent through injury or your age gets the better of you, you really Cut adrift, and you're dealing with the long term ramifications of not, you know, you've got the injuries to the body. So, that's like me, you know, I, I have a <laughs> struggle with my ankle from a broken leg and injured ankle that ended my career. But also, the main ones, the, the cognitive issues and the ability to function and manage their life because of the, the long term effects of concussion, you know, depression anxiety like inability to make that good decisions it's the ability to like navigate just <laughs> life really first of all because you're institutionalized as a professional player you know it's like this is what you've been dedicating your life to from from a young age and that's all you've ever really dreamed of and here you are you know so in my case i was 29 years old as you know i had my contract terminated for being for being injured and that's right now what now what is and as deep the ramifications from my my bodily injuries but also you know for, for me I definitely had effects from the concussions you know that I, I was knocked out 10 times during my like out clean 10 times during my nine years as a professional player I had many more concussions on top of that and so there's no doubt that there was you know the effects of the brain trauma affecting where where I was. And, you know, I after I retired, I had a, a very complicated process after retiring because there was multiple issues going on for me. But I definitely was struggling with my mental health, for sure. So what did happen then when you retired? Yeah. So for me, it was you know, like my retirement was kind of been. I felt like I was actually been put out of my misery because I'd been bouncing from one injury to another all through my career. And being injured as a sportsman is one of the worst places to be. It's very mentally challenging, and really, yeah. So I retired with a from a broken leg that I got playing for Scotland against France in the 2012 Six Nations. Tried for that full year to get back fit, and it just wasn't. It just wasn't healing, and so my contract was torn up twelve months after the injury. And I was kind of like looking forward to really moving forward with my life and and like putting rugby behind me and yeah, finding maybe a more peaceful way of of living. (laughs) Less dangerous. (laughs) Less dangerous for sure. I was ready to be honest. I was ready to be out. It was like I'd had enough, but I had had the complication of having to have surgeries on my my leg that was still not really healing. I was struggling struggling to walk and yet two more surgeries. And after one of the surgeries, I got an infection in the ankle and was put on antibiotics. And as soon as the antibiotics were finished, my digestive system stopped working, and I was struggling to to eat anything. And as the weeks went on, there was less and less foods I could eat, I lost four stone in four months. Whoa! Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I was my my di- digestive system just shut up shop. It just like pff, right. I'm done. And yeah, I was I was just going through this really. Intense process with with my body, and had loads of other symptoms popping up. I had like you know neurological things, like you know like muscle spasms, and and also like heart palpitations and insomnia. Yeah, so my, my body felt like it was it was really breaking down. So I was navigating this as well as having a, a broken leg that I couldn't really walk on. It was incredibly painful to walk, so I was kind of housebound in a real real bad way and naturally my mental health kind of imploded as well you know I was mourning the loss of my career which is always tough for a sportsman but also mourning the loss of my future because I couldn't see a way forward from like how I went to see the doctors and doctors you know basically said there's nothing wrong with you and I was just well you know in terms of my digestive system um, which was kind of you know insane insane really and so, yeah, I felt really, really cut adrift. My, the the union had ended my medical support for my, my leg as well. So I no, no longer had private health insurance. So I was stuck on NHS waiting times to, to see, to get more surgery, to try and get the ankle fixed. So, yeah, I was really in this difficult place. And I came to the realization that, for me, it was kind of clear that the antibiotics were the straw that broke the, the camel's back after years, yeah. years taken huge amounts of pharmaceutical drugs and this is you know a big part of my journey that hasn't really been spoken about too much but with all the injuries and surgeries I had which was a lot came out a raft of pharmaceutical drugs for, for different things. For pain or what sort of drugs were you given? Yeah pain relief things like tramadol and codeine and paracetamol, cocodamol and you know in France there was benzos handed out there's something called tetrazepam. Oh like sleeping pills, Zopoclone, zopoderm, Yeah. There's anti-inflammatories, Sodium Diclofenac, Meloxicam, and then with the surgeries, over 20 surgeries since I was 20.
0: Oh, that's just so many, so many more than anybody.
1: Ethics and like exposure to morphine, Oxycontin. You're know, just, just a lot of a lot of, and I was popping painkillers every day throughout my career because it was with every injury it becomes harder and harder to get out on the field and there's huge pressure to train and to play so at least when I played there was a you know myself and quite a lot of other players were kind of like dependent on the pain relief to be able to to be able to play and of course you know, back then I was very naive and and trusting I thought all these substances were safe and effective, and you know, I wasn't aware, I didn't even think about the long-term repercussions of these things. But you know, it's you know, the best part of ten years popping these pills every, every day, you pretty much. And some of them are highly addictive, the tetrazepam, the, the 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 opioids, and you know, the the benzos, of course. And I witnessed, you know, at times there was addiction there for me, and I also saw it in many other players, other teammates who were dependent on these and it becomes psychological and, you know, for the, the physical, for, for the performance.
0: And um, you were given no sort of education about that when you were given drugs like benzodiazepines or opioids, you know, that's. No, intense.
1: level of naivety. There really was. It was, and I, I think that the culture back then was quite different because it was at the time, I guess, when the opioid crisis was really kind of, taking place in in the us and some of these you know i don't know know, some of the things coming out onto the market they hadn't been out on the market for that long and and just within the culture there was an overall sense of trust in the medical system and, and the pharmaceutical method which i feel people are much more cautious and aware now than they've ever been before but I was the pharmaceutical poster boy, you know, just full full trust taking these things without without any concern at all. And the truth is, without them, I wouldn't have had the career I did because I wouldn't have been able to train or or play, certainly at the level that I, I needed to. So, yeah, they played their part in helping me play, but there was long term ramifications that I just wasn't prepared for.
0: So that is a culture, Rory, that that needs
1: to change in the game. I believe it has. I believe it has. I am under the impression my brother is still involved in the game. He's he's a, like a, a fitness coach, conditioning coach, and he 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 said it's much tighter control now than there was when I was a player. When I was in France, and in France, you know, it's, they've got an incredible pharmaceutical cultures of there's a pharmacy on just about every street in the town you know in france these these things were just on the side in the physio room players would just go pick them up themselves take them themselves you know sometimes without you know asking and yeah you know when i was in france at uh, toulon it was there was so multiple players at various times hooked on some of these those the Tetrazepam or the tramadol And of course, you know, you take them for pain initially. And then, you of course, they're highly, highly addictive. And they, they leave you feeling terrible when you try to come off as well. There's horrendous withdrawal from them.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's good to hear that, you know, with your brother and things have changed quite a lot. There's much more knowledge and much better education now and understanding of these things. I was always struck when talking to the combat veterans uh, clearly you've had had a lot of trauma not all that dissimilar I don't think to the things that they've experienced but that physical trauma as well and but the use of alcohol I wonder is that the case elite sports probably not so much
1: alcohol not not really I mean on one level there would be binge drinking so again I think it's changed now so c- camera phones have stopped rugby players going out drinking anymore <laughs> but when I was a- when I was a player, after the game, not after every game, but you know after some games you know, there'd be the excitement about going out for a few drinks together and Of course, you know rugby players are kind of like extreme athletes and extreme behaviours so pushing to the edge on everything, and so the binge drinking would be like really you know strong and and there'd be a lot of it, not all the players but a lot of the players. And not all the time, but some of the time. Certainly, when I you know re- retired, like you know, none, <laughs> I was in a health crisis. So the physical issues stopped me turning towards any any kind of <laughs> any at least any alcohol. And I was highly you know in my crisis. I I was I knew the pharmaceutical route was not <laughs> not the answer. I I didn't want to go. I didn't you know because I, I was dealing with depression and anxiety, as having suicidal ideation and i just knew that you know going to the gp though it's like well here here takes you know an antidepressant you are know, just take this for your anxiety i knew the pharmaceutical route wasn't the answer to, to my problem because i had this awareness that this had been a significant part of what led me into my where i was in with with this this health crisis that i was in with body mind and spirit
0: yeah I think our listeners will really want to to hear about your how you found psychedelic experience really and what led you to that and and how was it I think
1: yeah so truth be told I had a the first time I had a psychedelic experience was with uh, psilocybin with mushrooms in 2008 I was still a professional player it was not long after I had the probably the, the worst head injury of my career, I had a real bad head injury. I took a knee to the face, which caused I think it was eight fractures to the, the the eye socket, cheekbone, and jaw, and I had a facial reconstruction. I was knocked out like clean out into a seizure for you know five or six minutes, and you know was stretched it off and taken to hospital. And that point was that was the first time i was like rory should probably <laughs> retire from this game because he's doing himself a lot of damage but i it wasn't long after that a few months after that while i was out injured i, I tried psilocybin for the, the first time and i think it was something i'd been naturally drawn to just through the you know all the all the research and information about dealing with you know with like full psychological issues you know i was kind of dealing with a bit of a depression at the time and to be honest, it really, it did really help. It, it completely kind of transformed my, my mindset and in, in many, many, in many ways. So that was the first time I'd actually experienced it. So it had always been on my radar. I'd been paying attention to all the research coming out. I'd been listening to people's stories about ayahuasca o- over the years. But when I came to my crisis in 2013, when I was down and out, to be honest, you know, I, I thought about, psilocybin to try and navigate the depression and suicidal ideation that i was dealing with and it was daily suicidal ideation that i was kind of stuck in i felt such a bad way i couldn't see a way forward That if this and i was in so much physical and emotional pain that i if this continues for much longer i was I have to take my own life because it was it was excruciating all aspects just like i felt like i was in a torture chamber And this, I was in this kind of, you know, this difficult situation for just over a year and, yeah, not being able to see a way out. I was always hoping for some kind of intervention. I was hoping someone was going to come and rescue me because I, I clearly, in this situation, couldn't get myself out of it. I was in a real, real, like, dark place. And one day I was just listening to a Joe Rogan podcast, and this is 2014, and heard he was interviewing a guy called Aubrey Marcus, who is like a businessman. And also, he was sharing his experience with the plant medicine Iboga. And it was maybe, he was speaking for about, about it for about 30, 30 minutes. And when I was listening to it, it just, everything he was saying about it, It just sounded like the the medicine that I I needed in the moment. I just had a full body knowing that this was somehow gonna help me. And it was just like the lights went on in that moment.
2: Hello everyone, Dr. Hannah Thurger here. Sorry to interrupt the show, but we have something really exciting that we wanted to share with you all. Drug Science is teaming up with the UK's most prolific psychedelic research centre. Imperial College London to record a one-off podcast special. But wait, there's more. On Tuesday the 15th of August from 6:30 until 9:30, we're taking the conversation offline and bringing it to the heart of West London. So yes, that's right. Not only are we collaborating with Imperial College for this prestigious podcast episode. This will be a live podcast recording and you're invited to be a part of our audience. Imperial College is sending us their best and brightest minds for an exclusive insight into the world of psychedelic clinical trials, many of which are not even public knowledge at this point. So mark your calendars for Tuesday the 15th of August, doors open at 6pm and the podcast recording starts at 6.30pm sharp. And as always, our Drug Science Premium community members will be able to attend this event for free, and we'll even be invited to participate in the conversation too. We'll have a Q&A session where community members can ask their burning questions to our panel of experts. So it's a chance to engage directly with the leading minds in, in the field and ask Dave pretty much anything. Find out how to become a community member by visiting the link in the show notes. Otherwise, tickets are available now. Please see the other link in the show notes. So don't wait too long, though, as space is limited and we do expect this event to sell out fast. I look forward to seeing you there. And now back to the show.
0: So you so you felt that psilocybin wouldn't help you, but Iboga would this time.
1: Yeah, I had been scared of going to psilocybin. I, I was for some reason I'd, I was in such a dark place. I was scared that it was going to exacerbate how I felt magnify how I felt which you know in hindsight was you know just a projection of my my fear but it really yeah it just and the thought of you know doing it on my own and all this kind of thing for for whatever reason I just ruled it ruled it out so when I hear this you know testimonial from Aubrey Marcus and you know he, he attended this Iboga retreat center in Costa Rica and he spoke about the environment and you know the, the space that it was held in and so i you know i thought of doing a psychedelic medicine while supported with caring individuals at a retreat space that does this you know professionally was a lot more appealing and yeah just when i heard him speak about it i just knew this was the thing that was going to help me and so it was probably only maybe a couple of weeks later i managed to get myself out to Costa Rica, out just pure, pure desperation, really. Just like this is, I'm hoping this is going to save my life. And yeah, got out there and this Iboga retreat center, and I had in ten days I had three, three flood doses, three ceremonies with this very powerful African plant medicine, and it really in that ten day window, my whole understanding of who I was this life is what my my situation was everything had been lifted my perspective had been lifted and after the first ceremony which I was, I was kind of like disappointed with because I didn't really get all the experiences that I'd heard that Boga could offer I was getting you know some visions but it wasn't really any kind of mystical experience
0: this is something that we hear quite a lot I was talking to a combat veteran a couple of weeks ago Similar thing with ayahuasca, two ceremonies even didn't really, you know, he'd had horrendous trauma uh, from Afghanistan war. So that didn't really, even the second experience did help him a bit with the experiences of the war. But after that, the shaman said to him, no, we're not done. We need to do another couple of ceremonies and gave him something called caskabar. Which I've never heard of. So, mixed a different brew. And he said, and that's when it all happened, you know? So, yeah, it sounds quite a similar, maybe, experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, after the, while well, the experience, I was a little bit disappointed with, although it was a, you know, still quite a powerful process. It was, it was a strong, iboga is a very strong medicine and I don't recommend anyone to just go seek it out anywhere because it's a very strong medicine. That takes. You want, want to make sure that you're in a safe space with your well-intentioned practitioners who are experienced and have medical support as well. But having said that, the depression and the negativity, the, the negative loop that i had been stuck in was just switched off just after one, one ceremony, just just all this optimism kind of returned to me. And it was, quite, it was quite remarkable. It's like a switch had just been flipped. And then a couple of days later, I had a second ceremony, which was one of the most difficult experiences I've ever been through. The medicine took me through this life review and showed me, showed me, all the ways I've been harming myself, I could remember everything, it just, and it showed me all the, the drugs, all the pharmaceuticals, all the surgeries, all, you know, all the injuries, concussions, the knockouts, just made me see it all and have this awareness of everything kind of I'd been through, and it was absolutely terrifying to see the amount of you know destruction that I'd, I'd caused myself through through my my actions and through not just through rugby but also you know partying and drinking to excess and just completely living my life out of balance you know it's like all the stimulants the caffeine you know it's like pseudoephedrine you know, we used to take as well just before games just doing everything possible to really harm my harm myself not not Consciously, but it was it was there, and it was.
0: And Rory, is that the the medicine, or did the shamans help you?
1: That, that that was just the medicine. Me, myself, and and the medicine. And it was honestly, it was absolutely terrifying. In in fact, it was it was quite overwhelming to to see all the ways that I'd been hurting myself, and it really. You know, at one point, I, I thought, wow, I am going to have to end my life because there's no way. That I can recover from the amount of damage I've done. The, the message was very clear. It was like, "What did you think would happen? Doing all this, living in this way. What, what did you think would happen?" And so, and so, you know, there's all this like guilt of the way I've been carrying myself and, and hurting myself, and just the way I've been living. But then the medicine took me through this life review, from seeing the the wounds that I had experienced during childhood, the trauma, the difficult relationship I had with my father, some of the other experiences as well that created this w- wounds of rejection, really, a real intense wounds of rejection, and low self esteem. That was really at the core of my being. The truth is, the suicidal ideation that I've I'd been experiencing for that last year or so it wasn't the first time I'd experienced it i this was just revisiting emotions from my childhood. I remember being very young and not wanting to be here and just feeling deep emotional pain you just and not yeah just not wanting to exist and I'd experienced that through difficult moments throughout my life but it really had been disappeared as a professional rugby player because I had all this material external success being propped up my the wounds being held up by i guess society ex- success
0: so you'd kind of often the the i suppose depression in childhood or feeling suicidal on occasion
1: yeah yeah so as as a child it was just i that there was a low self esteem through wounds of re- rejection not feeling loved and and really wanted with my father these childhood experiences that we go through have a profound effect oh, on yeah. us in, in later life and this was always simmering below the surface, always. And during difficult moments in my adolescence and, you know, even be- just before as a rugby player, the, there would be little moments where these energies would pop up to the surface. But in this crisis after my rugby career with all my like, f- feeling like I've lost everything, like my physical health and my, my life, my job, my future, all these emotions were just coming up to the surface to be to be felt. And so during the second Iboga ceremony, I was, I was being taken back and through the, the difficult experiences that I'd been through and how they, they, these wounds had really shaped my behaviors and my, my excesses and my willing to sacrifice myself. And, and it's all, all through this desire for, for validation and for love. And it's, it's like the desire to please coaches and teammates and to be loved and to be liked. And to feel connection. Do you think this was partly to do with your brother, his success? I don't think so. I I think Sean's success. Sean carries the same wound. It just manifests in different ways in his his life. He's he's he he's gone through similar difficulties. But of course, we're different human beings, and we respond slightly different to to similar wounds. And of course, our experiences aren't exactly alike. My father was by all counts, was a lot more harsh on me than he was on my brother. So the pain I'd experienced, I think, might have been a little bit greater in some some aspects. But to be honest, you know, Sean's success was always a, a, a hugely, like, it was a big celebration. I just think that at the core of my, my being, I never really loved myself. I never really felt good enough. And here, here the medicine was, you know, the was taking me through these wounds and kind of showing me that this, all the dysfunctional, destructive behavior was rooted in this emotional pain, really. And a lot of it was just unfolding deeply unconsciously in my life. And through that, through that awareness, that like it was really, I was just kind of like responding, like living life from my wounds, I found compassion for myself and really forgiveness because i then realized my life unfolded in the only way that it ever really could when we're driven by these unconscious energies and these these wounds until we make them conscious and integrate them into a conscious awareness we're really controlled by them and they're driving a lot of our choice lifestyle choices and behaviors and so through this compassion for myself and forgiveness and because it wasn't just myself i'd hurt in my journey i'd hurt others loved ones you know partners girlfriends a lot you just so i had to forgive myself for a lot i'd forgive myself especially for like i'd been judging myself for being a failure after rugby because i was now in this horrendous situation i was like well i've orchestrated this mess i'm obviously not good at doing life you know like my inability to have you know because i was flying so high i was now rock bottom and I was like how did i get here well you're responsible for this like you've got yourself in this mess and therefore you know you're obviously not good at navigating life so i had to forgive myself for all the mistakes and and harm i'd caused myself and the way i'd behaved and and through this compassion and this forgiveness for myself and others forgiving my father as well for the the, the wounds because i realized that he was just passing on his wounds to me his wounds of rejection so this compassion and love that I could suddenly feel took me into this incredibly blissful state during the ceremony. And I felt this deep connection for myself and gratitude for who I am and and the everything I've navigated. And the first eight hours of this experience were, because bogue is a long medicine, it stays in the system many, many hours. The first eight or nine hours were just pure hell. I was kind of taken into this underworld, visionary like underworld, very like demonic feeling <laughs> as I was going through this awareness of all the ways of been destroying myself. It was it was a painful space to be in. And then when it I uh, got through to th- this point of compassion and forgiveness, I was taken into into what would be like going from a hellish situation into a heavenly energy where I felt bathed in love and compassion. And just pure bliss radiating through my entire being. And that really continued. That, that feeling stayed, stayed with me. And then in the hours kind of after the ceremony, all this like this, I was kind of given a blueprint for moving forward with my life on how to navigate the very big challenges that I was still facing. Because the truth is, nothing had changed. My situation was exactly the same. But my perspective had just been lifted. And now I could see a way forward. Hope had returned. And really, you know, I had a, another ceremony after that, but that wasn't as really the second ceremony that was the transformational experience for me. And yeah, af- after that point, everything kind of changed and my i hope had returned and I started moving forward with my life and naturally connecting to the well, world. I started connecting with natural healing modalities, breathwork, meditation, and nutrition. And just with, with this hope felt inspired to like, I felt the inner strength to be able to move forward.
0: It's just extraordinary Rory that you have such a healing, you know, process. I mean, I guess in eight hours of being in hell sounds horrendous actually, <laughs> you know. Really brave then to do another ceremony, I think. But of course, you came out of it so well. So, did you have any, you know, integration coaching or any help to make sense of it, or kind of did the plant do this for you?
1: Yeah, you know, it didn't. It didn't cure my life. It gave me. It gave me hope. And yeah, the, the integration. No, there, there wasn't much integration support, and that's been, you know, that's something I had to find strength in a strength this process over since that point that was 2014. Not long after that life brought the opportunity for me to go to Colombia just through a series of synchronicities and sit with the indigenous in uh, Colombia with ayahuasca and this was really part of my integration is sit learning from the indigenous the way that they see the world and they see they look at the West, us in the West and kind of see us as lost brothers and children who have severed our connection to nature and we don't really know who we are. And so being in the presence of the, the indigenous and the indigenous tribes and sitting in the ceremonies, but also learning the wisdom, that was such a, a big part of my integration. And I was very lucky that I stumbled across a couple of brothers, Colombian guys, brothers who just really looked after me and took me on this incredible journey and and were fully invested in helping me heal and integrate all this this wisdom and and feeling all that love and support but yes the the integration is not is not an easy process it's incredibly challenging and there was definitely a lack of support when us back in back in the UK for sure and it wasn't without its challenges.
2: So integration It's often spoken about this lifelong journey of how you sustain these changes and you have talked about your other healing modalities And so what have you found most useful?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, I had to like heal on the physical level so like Nutrition getting like finding out the most healing what's the most healing diet trying to figure that out that took a long time but being dedicated to that path of knowing what how to feed myself because Diet really matters, you know. We we, we, it has a profound effect on a body, mind, and spirit. But breathwork, meditation, getting out into nature. I was doing, you know, I was doing a lot of. I mean, we used to do a lot of cold water therapy as as professional rugby players. But doing the cold water therapy, sauna therapy, just really these were the tools that I was reliant on. I did a little bit of talking therapy, which was helpful at times. But I wasn't really so much drawn to that. I was just really con- connecting with these natural healing tools, these ancient tools with you know breath work or meditation, you know, it's like with, learning how to manage stress, being a huge thing, obviously, stress and like, you know, exposure to adrenaline has a you know profound effect on our health. It really it can block us from healing if we if we've got any health conditions. So Meditation, breathwork are really profound because it can really help us build resilience in our, you know, body, mind, and spirit. So that when the bombs are going off around us, that we don't we're not feeling triggered and we can respond in a calm way. But yeah, just just getting out into nature as as much as possible. But I bought myself a, a bike so I could, you know, struggling to walk, but getting out onto the bike into nature was get it so exercise, being able to move the body was absolutely key to getting on the bike was a huge part of my healing journey we like really have to nail nutrition we have to get our exercise right we have to learn how to rest and manage mitigate our, the stress in our life and yeah end up getting a couple of dogs as well which were incredible therapy <laughs> i recommend dogs for healing they're, they're incredible credible beings for radiating love and helping us feel, feel that love and, and peace, which is such an important part of the healing, being able to forgive ourselves for any mistakes we've made in the past and hold compassion for ourselves and others.
2: And so with Iboga, your differences between your Iboga experience and your ayahuasca experience, is there anything that really stood out?
1: So yes, there's significant differences I feel. I feel, you know, Iboga just took me to the truth and it was harsh, the harsh truth. And it was re- incredibly painful. It's kind of, like, ayahuasca is likened to a, a stern grandfather energy, whereas Ayahuasca is likened to a grandmother or mother type energy. Doesn't mean with Ayahuasca you can still get taken into very difficult spaces with Ayahuasca, but these difficult spaces are only aspects of our own psyche. That it's like our fears are coming to the surface. And it's like, it's really our fear that being guided by a fear that gets us into trouble in life. When we let fear drive our decision-making, it generally causes us more problems in our life. And so when we sit with these medicines, we do have to c- confront fear sometimes, not always. Sometimes you just get taken into like the most beautiful, healing, loving, compassionate experience, but sometimes you have to look at certain aspects of your life or aspects of your psyche, aspects of yourself that you're not accepting. And or things that have happened in the past, suppressed memories, suppressed trauma. Sometimes we have to look at that and say it's not always comfortable. It can be deeply uncomfortable, but the catharsis takes place when we get to witness it in a new way and start to integrate the shadow aspects of our psyche and our past. And through that integration, we experience acceptance and healing and self-love really. Which is absolutely a profound part of anyone's healing journey. It doesn't matter whether it's a physical issue or a psychological issue. It's like it's like self acceptance and self love is absolutely the profound mechanism that causes healing to take place.
2: Yeah, self-compassion is a common theme that's now discussed with, with all different types of psychedelics and with Iboga there's lots of interest with Iboga and addiction and partic- particularly tough addictions um, such as opioids and I'm wondering whether it needs to have that real stern experience that you've described to help people with such tough addictions rather than maybe psilocybin.
1: Yeah, I'll speak for personally for myself. I need some tough love. I, I really you know, like i just had to face face the truth and there's compassion that obviously came through and and it came a you know, difficult lesson came once i'd moved through and accepted and faced the truth you know the bliss came in but speaking about addiction of course addictions rooted in really predominantly in pain stress and trauma and you know whether it's emotional or physical and so these medicines get to the root of what is the underlying cause of addiction and you know i certainly saw when i was at this iboga retreat center i saw people healing the heroin addictions in one ceremony iboga is incredible for opioid addiction and that's where i mean as many like benefits for many different people but it's a remarkable medicine for for addressing opioid addiction and, and other other addictions but one of the the men was there that I was in ceremony with said it was just like that overnight the draw was it just been switched off the addiction had been switched off
0: incredible we have to bring this into the NHS don't we but in an ethical you know way
1: Yes, of course, of course. The potential is there, but we, we need to look into it. You know, we would like this, obviously the science, we looked into it and there's so much untapped potential with these medicines and ayahuasca. You know, ayahuasca as well is just uh, incredibly powerful medicine for addressing the, the root cause of addiction, mental health issues, and sometimes, you know, physical health issues are rooted in trauma you know quite often physical issues are rooted in emotional trauma and pain from the past that's just not being looked at or addressed so they they have incredible potential but they they need to be used safely and that's they're just not for anyone to self-serve or you know these medicines are powerful and used in the wrong hands they can cause problems for people and also they're not for everyone i think people who have Severe neurological conditions or mental you know psychosis outbreaks in the past you know psychotic breaks you know these medicines maybe aren't for them, but there's so many people who can potentially benefit from these and so you know that's why I'm speaking about my journey because I really think that these these medicines have saved my life and they've brought so much joy and i'm happy the happiest now i've I've ever been and you know a huge part of the healing process learning how to integrate these experiences into your life and i think now there's there's all sorts of integration coaches and there's so much support in you know in this country and in other countries there's there's so many options for integration support which probably wasn't there you know just 10 years ago or so it's it's, the, the whole landscape has completely transformed since i first connected with them
0: and your other point about how much we have to learn from indigenous people about these plant medicines?
1: The indigenous hold wisdom and knowledge about the nature of reality, about who we are, that has been lost somehow in our lineage. And I'm sure at one point, our ancestors were had this awareness, but the way I see it, the indigenous are playing a fundamental role in helping humanity heal as a collective. Indigenous wisdom has been <laughs> coming into the West. We're now we're at this magical point where? where out of this chaos that's happening on the planet, we've got Eastern wisdom coming, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism and some of these ancient wisdoms. And now we've got also, and of course, yoga. And then we've got, you know, the indigenous wisdom from the Amazon and the Americas that is coming in, and we've got this incredible melting pot where there's the opportunity to heal now is absolutely incredible something my my father who died of alcoholism last year he never had the opportunity to really connect with these these tools and this wisdom wasn't around for him and so i witnessed his painful journey and i was on a path for that same pain and yeah but these these medicines were the intervention that deviated my life on onto a higher path onto a healing path and I'm so grateful to the Indigenous tribes for their love and generosity to, to share their wisdom and share their medicines with us. And there's been probably millions of Westerners like myself who have journeyed to the Amazon to connect with their wisdom and connect with their medicines and come back and really share the message that the Indigenous carry. And, yeah, we should not. We have this through our scientific material Attitude in the West, we have an arrogance, we look down upon the indigenous, and we have so much to learn from them. That arrogance is holding us back as as a civilization, that we need to integrate the indigenous wisdom. And once we do that, we will become a much more sane, balanced and loving humanity.
0: And it's so badly needed, isn't it? After the pandemic and the mental health of, of people is so so bad, of many people is so bad now.
2: Rory, thank you so much. It's been fantastic, hasn't it, Hannah? Oh, incredible. Thank you so much for sharing your story. So, what a story, Joe!
0: Oh, just marvellous, folks. And, you know, I'm delighted to tell you how well and happy Rory is now, how great he looks, beaming from ear to ear, just looks fantastic now. And it's been a real privilege hearing your story. And I think the trauma of the sport, being an elite athlete, ending your career your career ended rather you know sudden other other abruptly but the sort of physical trauma it's been really fascinating to hear i don't really know now hannah and i are not rugby experts fascinating to hear about that and the, the story of healing is just just absolutely marvelous it's, it's been fantastic a real privilege talking to you for the listeners there's great information about drugs on the drug science website we have a section on iboga, on ayahuasca and psilocybin on all these, these medicines. So do log on there. I was looking this morning, certainly refreshed my knowledge and learned a lot.
2: All the drug information pages are great to kind of give you an overview of those drugs, as well as, you know, it's a good opportunity just to raise the ethical and sustainable concerns with some of these psychedelics lots of information out there already if you're interested in finding out about reciprocity schemes for ibogaine and for ayahuasca Um, really really worth reading into those and we've got a great blog post actually joe from a student as well on um, some of the reciprocity issues so give that a read on the drug science website as well
0: that's brilliant so thank you very much rory
2: thank you again
1: Thank you so much for having me on here. It's been a pleasure. Thanks.